Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This week's guest is Nick Robinson and this is a brilliant discussion not just about the role of the media in our political life and specifically the role of the BBC and the pressures that are on the BBC that aren't on any other broadcaster probably in the world, but also about the art of the interview, which is obviously something I've become a a real student of, something that I think about far more now uh, as a result of doing this podcast and how Nick and others plan and prepare for different types of interview. He gives some brilliant insights into how he does the Today programme compared to how he handled uh, the TV debates between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. So all the different areas, because he has to interview different people in so many different ways, which is fascinating. He has great insights into all those things. The wider issue, as I say, about the role of the media in our political life. Also just stuff about his voice and how he sounds. I I think I embarrassed him a bit. But I just love the way his voice sounds, and I think that's a huge part of his appeal and the way that he tells stories we talk about. You should know at the very outset of this conversation that we recorded a version of this in the morning, and the Wi-Fi was a bit bad, and we had to stop. And then when we picked up again, it was only at the end of... I'd interviewed him for over an hour. I realised I hadn't pressed record. Now... I think this says a lot about his generosity of spirit and personality. We then reconvened a couple of hours later and have then just recorded again over an hour. This is a guy who's presenting the Today Show tomorrow morning and here he is giving me basically nearly three hours um, on an afternoon. So um, I was very grateful for that. And as a result, I think the second conversation is better. We also talk about this a little bit. Obviously, you don't want to just repeat exactly what we'd gone over, but there were interesting things he said. Uh, in the first interview that I wanted to get out in the second. And we cover a whole load of stuff. So in the way, this has been hugely beneficial to you, the listener, because I think the conversation was far better the second time around. We covered slightly different things. Um, but it's it's brilliant, it's wide-ranging. And of course, the context now of how the media covers politics, particularly of how the BBC does, after the events in America last week, and specifically how they resonate with Nick, is really powerful. And there's just some great anecdotes in there. So so it is the perfect political party episode because there's great stories you've never heard elsewhere. There's some really lighthearted stuff. There's great thoughtful insight and there's a a reminder just of the gravity of politics and of the media. And all of of us, of citizens, um, about when to act. Uh, so this is just um, marvellous. I began by asking him a question I probably wouldn't have, and I, I can tell you now, I didn't open the first interview I did with him today. Um, I made the point, I probably subconsciously felt this earlier in the day, it only came uh, as a clear thought having to interview him a second time, but that I am a bit more self-conscious when I interview interviewers, people like Nick Robinson or Laura Koonsberg, because this is their job. So I'm always slightly um, paranoid, I guess, or not paranoid, maybe a little bit more self-conscious, a bit worried about interviewing interviews because I, I wonder if they're assessing my technique. Well, funnily enough, I don't get interviewed that often on broadcast. And if I have, it's often because I'm promoting a documentary or a, an interview or a book or something. So it's quite unusual just to chat about myself. I have my own podcast, Political Thinking, and once my editor thought it would be a funny idea to get a politician to interview me, so he asked George Osborne to interview me. 
And I made the huge mistake then of doing no thinking or preparation at all. I came straight out of some meeting and they now use this podcast. In fact, this week, this very week, students at City University Journalism course were told to listen to it because they, they noticed how uncomfortable I was and how he completely had me on toast. I think, I think his opening question was something like, were you always arrogant? Or were you always ridiculously ambitious? I can't remember which it was, but it was one of those you punched in the solar plexus from the minute you started talking. And I thought, I only asked you to do this for a sort of Christmas treat. <laughs> well, it was a Christmas treat for the listeners, but not quite in the way I'd anticipated. No, I mean, I, I wonder if, I suppose, as you say, it doesn't happen that often. But I always think with you when I listen to you interviewing people, you always sound like you've got a bit of a plan. And I don't know whether you do always have a plan or whether you're just a consummate professional and it you give the appearance of having a plan i do have a plan but i don't have a plan in this sense in fact i love what my editor once told me years ago is apparently a phrase from the american military which is plans are useless but planning is invaluable and i think in interviewing that's true people who sit there and you're not i can see you on zoom now having a cup of tea but with a piece of paper and they're literally as you're talking reading their next question utter disaster anybody who does that it's a catastrophe because the whole point is a conversation that's why we're looking at each other at the same time as um recording this um on the other hand people who don't have anything at all i think they end up using a big part of their brain not listening because they're thinking where am i going next have i asked that bit about so for me having like you know i usually have a sheet of scrap paper like this in front of me few notes on it and then I'll sort of scribble and arrows. And during the interview, I often have got a highlight pen like this. I go, oh, I didn't do that. And I didn't do that. I must come back to this. So I try to I try to do that. But the respect in which I do have a plan is I try and work out what's the kernel of an interview? Mm. What if you had to say to someone in a sentence, this interview was about that? What What's the that? It's the same thing I tried to do when I was political editor at the BBC and ITV is really only make one big point when you're doing those lives outside the door at number 10, what are you trying to get people to remember? And I think in interviews like that, what was this really, really about? And there so are different... On, Matt, what, what's this interview really about then? <laughs> well, this is about finding out what it's like to be Nick Robinson and what are the pressures on you and what are the, you know, the context in which you operate and how you do your job. You know, what insights can you give us about the, not just the job that you do now, but the, the, the previous posts you've held in your career? Well, where shall we begin? Well, I was gonna, I was gonna stay on the kind of on the art of interviewing, I guess, because you will conduct different types of interviews on your political thinking podcast. You may have guests booked for a period of time, and you've got just that space to ruminate of an evening and and Google them and whatever. On the Today program, I'm sure sometimes people are replaced at short notice. It's not the person you're expecting, and you've got to do an interview on the hoof that the country's listening to, which means you just have to be across everything. I guess you might get a bit of help in your ear, but when you're interviewing someone at short notice, often I imagine sometimes at a minute or so's notice, do you feel as comfortable in that as you do with the pre-prepared stuff? Yeah, and sometimes I like that because frankly, I get the adrenaline flow. I mean, one of the reasons I moved from current affairs, I used to be a producer in current affairs. I was at Panorama and before that at a, a Sunday lunchtime politics show on the record, making these projects that would you know, take six, eight weeks, sometimes months of preparation. One of the reasons I wanted to move to news, actually, is I get a kick off it going wrong. I actually used to produce David Dimbleby's studios in the old days at Panorama. He did big studios. 
And I suddenly realized I was an adrenaline junkie. I just absolutely loved it when I didn't know what was going to go on, when I didn't know what was going to happen next, when you're having to really operate off the top of your head. But again, it's like the plan and planning point. You're not really operating off the top of your head because hopefully like tomorrow morning, I'm presenting the Today programme. I didn't do it this morning. So as soon as I've stopped talking to you, I will watch and listen to a lot of news and try and get in my head. What's the essence of the new line on COVID? What, you know, what is it? It might be at the moment, the day we're talking, Scotland's tightened its rules, but England hasn't. And if you've got some of those things just boiled into key points in your brain, you, in theory, should be just able to be told in your head, uh, you know, in your earphones, which is what happened to my headphones, I'm sorry, on the Today programme, right, you're going to this person and you should just be able to talk because you know it. I mean, when Peter Sutcliffe died, the Yorkshire Ripper, uh, I knew he died. Um, it happened while we were on air. But it is literally the case that they said, start an introduction and we'll tell you who you've got. And I started to talk about Peter Sutcliffe. And then they went, former chief constable, Peter, and you talk. My God. <laughs> oh, I come off air. I just come off air and think, that is, I love that. It's great. Exciting. How do you make sure that you're fully on top of everything? I mean, I know that you're a broadcast journalist. You have a team of editors and producers and things. When you're interviewing politicians, they're obviously often concerned about not dropping the ball, not getting the stats wrong or, or something. But equally, you have to be totally informed. I mean, do you get a briefing from, does the Today programme provide that, you know, almost is there a kind of BBC version of the civil service? Well, there is a briefer who is just a member of the team on a rotor, so it's not a set person. But there's a briefer who, you know, during the evening and often, you know, frankly, you bump into them when you come into work. In the pre-COVID days, when I arrived at the office at 4.15 in the morning, sometimes that person, they shouldn't be, they should have got home ages ago, but sometimes they're still there getting it right. And yet for a big interview, if you're interviewing the Chancellor for the budget, you might get sort of eight sides of A4. Now, for something like that, which is a set piece, um, I'll have a long conversation the day before. So after the budget, I'll say, this is what I think. And in order to make my judgment, I've watched it, I've read it, I've made some calls, I've looked at the people I respect on Twitter, the commentators who I think have got good insights. And I'll try and boil it down and say, that's what I'm interested in. Can you get me a bit more on that, a little bit more on this? And do it that way. On a normal day, like for tomorrow morning, um, I don't know, It's we're now talking at, what, three o'clock? I haven't a clue who I'm interviewing tomorrow. I might know before I go to bed, but frankly, it could all change. Um, and uh, yeah, I will wake up and in my inbox, because I'm presenting from home at the moment, will be a bunch of those briefs. But you have to speed read them as well. I had a moment the other day, which will amuse you, where for some reason I woke early and it was, yeah, it was the moment the... Um, it was the moment the capital had been seized. So I'd gone to bed seeing some of that, but not seeing it all the way through. I woke up, thought, I wonder what's happening. There was a message on my phone saying, give us a call when you wake up. I rang up and they said, we've got David Axelrod, Obama's former guy. <clears throat> we've got the former head of the CIA um, to talk to you. So, oh, great. OK, well, look, I'll, I'll get dressed. I'll have a bit of a think about it. When are they? He said, um, in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. They're like the key interviews of the Today programme. So the awful thing as well is the great joy of news is it's gone. You know, it's the old cliche in newspapers, fish and chip paper, it's gone. The hell is, is when you've got a pre-recorded interview you did when you're barely awake without any briefing. 
at 10 past uh, four in the morning. And then you have to wait four hours for this garbage to go out. <laughs> and you think, my voice is croaky. I've asked the wrong question. I didn't follow that up. And the worst thing now, of course, is people tweet. Why did you, you know, why didn't you follow up? And you want to say, bloody well, no. <laughs> you know what time it was? It's one thing to listen to pre-recorded stuff go out live as you're sat there. Uh, do you ever listen back? I mean, I'm sure you did when you started, but do you still do it now? Do you still listen back to your interviews to see things you could have improved or done differently? To be honest, right. very, very rarely. Um, very rarely, but I am... Yeah, it's a cliche to say you're your own worst critic, and I'm sure there are quite a lot of people listening to this podcast who'd say, I'm more of a bloody critic of Nick Robinson than he is. So I don't literally mean that, but I I do beat myself up quite badly after interviews. Um, and often that's more about the tone than it is. You know, the great tightrope we're on is that half of the audience are saying to us, why the hell didn't you ask this? Why didn't you pick up that? Why did you let him get away with the other? Um, why are you being an apologist for an enabler for whatever, right? On the other hand, the other half said, will you shut up? I can't really listen to what this person's saying. Why don't you let them explain their own point? Why do you like the sound of your own voice so much? And um, I don't hear voices, Matt, but there is, that, there is that moment you have afterwards thinking, did I get the balance right? Was there a different way of doing it? And the other thing that people don't understand I think you often get complaints about letting people get away with things. And if you take a really controversial subject like Brexit, say, like the pandemic, like Trump, people who feel really passionately hear one of their political hate figures say something and they want you instantly to say that's not true. Or, and I had an argument about this when I interviewed Michael Gove the other day. He mentioned that free ports were something they could do. Um, now Brexit is complete. And I got a lot of criticism. Why didn't you point out you can have free ports under, under membership of the EU? Now, the real reason is because that's a three minute part. If I point out you can and he says, well, you only can in these circumstances. And then I say, but there are 20 in this country and used to be there. That's like a lot of time. And the other thing people don't really understand is you're making choices in interviews. You know, and today we've got between what eight and 12 minutes normally, occasionally a lot longer for a for, the prime minister or maybe the chancellor but you you do have to on the fly go that's worth pursuing or no no i'm going to leave that because i'm really determined to get to the the next point and when you listen back to yourself and you are criticizing yourself or maybe even you don't listen back you just you come out the other end of an interview are there common things that you do that annoy yourself oh god yes and what are they what does what winds nick robinson up about nick robinson uh what <laughs> I think I used to always use the phrase forgive me as a way of apologising for interrupting. It annoys me that I say it. Um, I say I'm sorry to interrupt, which I think just draws attention to the fact you're interrupting. And in fact, it's much better to just get on with it and interrupt and not apologise for it. Um, yeah. And occasionally, what else do I do? Well, occasionally it's kind of being flabby in a question which allows someone who's evasive to pick out the bit they want to answer and ignore the other bit. So, and I sometimes listen to fellow presenters and think, oh, that's, that's clever, they did that. They've, I think we've all got strengths and weaknesses, actually, which before you ask, I'm not going to tell you. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but occasionally I, 
to be honest, I spend more time listening to my colleagues' interviews and thinking, that's clever. That's a good thing to do. I should do that. And, and what sort of tips are those? What, what things have you noticed that you think, oh, that's a great way of framing a question? Well, it, to, do, to be honest, it's more about how you interrupt in a way that is not annoying. We have to interrupt. There isn't enough time. And the problem is increasingly that ministers, you know, have done six, seven interviews. They've done GMB, Breakfast, Times Radio. And because traditionally today's been the big 10 past eight slot, by the time they get to you, they're a bit weary. They're a bit bored. They're now at home doing their own tech. So they've got all the problems we've got. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, <laughs> hey, listeners, we're doing this for the second time. Oh, anyway. dear, dear, dear. Um, and you've got to find a way of stopping them just talking. Because for them, it's like, all I want to do is get to the end of this interview. And the temptation is just to give a speech rather than answer a question. But you've got to do it in a way that isn't irritating to listen to and irritating to them because, you know, um, they so have a choice whether to come on or not. It's a great question. What is the best way to interrupt someone in an interview? I think it is to go for it. In other words, not to go, uh, 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 uh. I mean, when, you, when you've decided, do it is the first point. I think it is to use... Here's a funny thing which I learned from voice therapy. It is to use consonants, the, that's, they're stronger sounds. If you use vowels, they're, they're weaker sounds. You know, you can cut in more effectively with, with consonants with strong sounds in that way. Um, and to do it in a way that looks like you're not trying to divert them, you're just trying to clarify the points they're making. Yeah. Um, so to say to a minister who's talking about Yes, that's true, but, or yes, you say that, but, you know, I don't know, it, it, I make it brief. But yes is a positive word as well, isn't it? Rather than saying no, yeah. I wonder if that's part of it. That it, it when that's... they hear that, they don't react as badly. I think that's true, and I think that's true in a lot of communication, by the way. I mean, I remember somebody who worked for both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown saying the reason that Blair was a brilliant interviewee, and I'm not talking about agreeing with him, but he was a brilliant interviewee, and I still really enjoy interviewing. I mean, the reason that Gordon Brown was generally a really difficult interview, I haven't interviewed him for a bit, which may tell you something about <laughs> how well our interviews wrote in the past, but I hear him now and it's still true, is that Blair used a formula which Clinton also used, which is yes, but... And Gordon always said, no, and. And the yes makes you feel good. So if you ask Blair something, he's not really saying yes quite a lot of the time. You go, yeah, yes, that, that, that's an important point. And, and you're feeling good. And then you go, oh, bloody hell, he's not actually agreeing with me at all. And Gordon would start with a negative. And as an interviewer, it gets you back up because you're thinking, well, what do you mean no? You know, make it a perfectly reasonable point. And it, there's a lot of technique in that. And do you think, obviously, there's a third person in all of these interviews, which is the audience. Do you think, my view of all, always is with politicians, with their relationship in the media is, be nice to the media because you're actually talking to the people at home. So when you're grumpy in an interview, you're not just being grumpy with Nick Robinson or Andrew Neil or Sarah Montague. You're being grumpy with me, who's sat at home with my spaghetti hoops on toast, giving you five minutes. And, you know, I, that was the issue I always had with Corbyn was... You're talking to us, you know, cheer up yeah. a bit, even yeah. if it pains you to talk to these media folk. Do you think the same effect is on the audience that when Tony Blair says to you, yes, and 
the audience pick up on that and they feel more positive as well. I do think it makes a difference. I think I think tone is massively important in communication. People, when they say stop interrupting, which often you know interviewers get, I don't think they really mean that. I think they actually mean this is an uncomfortable listen. This is just, I feel awkward. I'm sort of slightly tempted to turn it off. Actually, it can be quite a combative interview, but if it's done with respect, with good humour, um, with both sides kind of appreciating they've got a good job to do, I think then that's a perfectly enjoyable uh, listen for people. So, yeah, I think tone is really, really... The great communicators have got the right tone. And I think the great broadcasters have got the right tone. Yeah. The, the tone, I, I guess, in different ways, and I always think about you when I think of this, is it's not just about the language you choose and when you interrupt, but with audio mediums, radio in particular, the way people sound, I think, has a real effect on the listener. And I think your voice, and I don't know whether you've ever thought of this, but I enjoy the Today programme more that you're on it since you've been on it, because I think that lovely kind of husky way that you speak really suits, you know, I think it's seven in the morning, I've just woken up, I don't want a kind of, I don't want to be assaulted. You have a lovely... You sound great for first thing in the morning. If you, if you, I, I hope that doesn't sound rude. I think you know what I'm getting at. You have a great, your voice sounds perfect for that time of the day and that sort of interview. And I don't know if that's ever occurred to you before. Well, I think what you're saying, Matt, is the cancer was good for my career. <laughs> <laughs> and I sound like a bloke who's had a box of Rothmans and only just got out of bed. <laughs> uh, I, do you know what? I've never occurred to me at all, really. You know, partly because I worried for a lot. I don't now, but I used to worry a lot about how my voice was after I had cancer and lost my voice as a byproduct of the operation. But um, uh, I don't do that. It's interesting because I tend to slightly beat myself up, which is I haven't got a classic radio voice. I mean, John Humphreys has got a, a lovely Welsh deep baritone voice some of the great figures in radio you may remember years back and only older listeners will remember nick clark lovely guy presented the world at one just a gorgeous voice to listen to you could it didn't oh, excuse me <coughs> excuse me didn't matter what was on the program you just wanted to hear nick say now i haven't got one of those voices but um I've learned something about I've also learned that you have spaghetti hoops on toast in the morning. <laughs> well, not, not necessarily in the morning. <laughs> but, but when you think of Humphreys, that's someone who worked on his voice, didn't he? He took a version of his voice and he added a richness. And, you know, you, you, you hear it sometimes with sporting commentators, definitely do that. Boxing commentators in particular add that richness into the voice, digs in deep, you know, and it, because it, it, it sounds right for that particular... Um, I guess in a way you're kind of like a snooker commentator. You have that kind of yeah. Virgo-esque approach yes. to a political interview. But it's interesting you say that because I um, obviously had to do a lot of work when I lost my voice with a voice therapist. And until really quite recently, she, bless her, with incredibly sweet of her, Julia, my voice therapist, would text me during the programme and say, sounding a bit constricted. And say, you Why know, didn't you interrupt him about... <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but she would do about what the voice was sounding like, you know, pr do project this, do that, you know, ver various techniques that we'd learn because I effectively had to relearn how to, not how to literally how to talk, but how to make a sound when I was talking. She does that. I've never consciously thought of the sound. It's probably 
you know, was relieved that I'm making a sound at all, but I pro- I'm now going to do it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Shall I become like David Coleman or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or you could do my voice for me because you're good at that. Well, it's not. I think the, the things I always notice about you are the, and yet, you know, there's a, you, you're a storyteller. And in fact, in your book, in Election Notebook, one thing I really liked about it was you write how you speak. So I think there's a bit in there, and it might be when you're talking about your cancer, where you write, and yet, and yet, and yet. And I thought, he says that on the telly, he says that on the radio, he says that on the page. Is that how you think? You know, when you're reprimanding your children or you're in <laughs> Tesco's, do you go, it's two pounds a pint for milk, but an Aldi. Oh, an Aldi. It's a very different story. <laughs> is that your internal monologue? This is a nightmare hearing myself back here. You know what? When I joined today, the editor who recruited me actually banned me from saying and yet and yet. I hadn't realised I was doing it all the time. And when I was ITV News political editor, I used to uh, edit my piece next to the great Eleanor Goodman, who was the Channel 4 News political editor before Gary Gibbon, his boss for a long time. And we used to pop in and out of each other's edit suites to see what we were doing. And I had this script line. I had no idea that I obviously massively overused like Agnès. And she came in. So play me the top of your piece. And I did. And it started with the phrase, it wasn't meant to be like this. And she said, you said that last week. (laughs) And now I quite often write it and then go, no, can't do that. Can't do it. Uh, Got to think of something else. So I don't know uh, where I learned to speak like that. But, uh, you know, look, I've always been verbal. I was a debater. But the storytelling element of it, I, I think, is brilliant because it just, when it's just news all day and people like me consume it all day, and I'm sure you do as well, and you're part of it. When someone just frames something slightly differently, and in that way where you think this is going to be just slightly more entertaining as well, and not in a goofy way or not at the expense of any information, but they're just going to package this information differently, I think it makes it more memorable. And I don't know whether that's something that you knew and thought, well, that's something that I can bring that other people don't do, or whether that's just the way you are. I think I did have a conscious view that people made politics unnecessarily complicated. And they sometimes made it complicated to make themselves look clever. So it was a kind of, if you know what a second reading is or a white paper or a chairman of the 1922 committee. And you know what, if you hear people do that, usually it's because they don't know very much. So they're actually kind of dressing up this very thin gruel with this sort of peppering of jargon. And actually the person who really knows what's going on is the person who can tell you the story, say, look, tell you what's going on. The prime minister's worried about this. He's under pressure from that law. And that's the person who's really telling you the story. And I do like, look, I know that, you know, it's true of most of my friends. My, my mates in real life are not politicians. They're not people in politics, they're not even journalists. So I've got a pretty good idea of whether people are interested or bored. And so in a way, I try and hear in my head, you know, them go, oh, God, really? You know, and say, how can you sum this up in a way that's engaging, Seems like it matters and is comprehensible. You'd have to go. What, what was that word you used again before? What was that? You know. And do you, is there part of you because it's kind of showbiz broadcast journalism? It, it, it's a different type, but it's you're on telly, you're on the radio. Was there a part of you that ever wanted to be an actor? Uh, it was famously called, by the way, politics, as you probably know, showbiz for ugly people. Um, uh, which I think, when I look at some of. <laughs> 
the characters who've been political editors over the years is probably quite appropriate. In fact, Robert Pesson's slightly annoyingly good looking, actually. Tom Bradbury used to really piss me off because I, I used to say to him, look, you're not supposed to be good looking and a political editor. That's not part of it. And Laura too, for that matter. But, you know, in the old days when it was kind of me and Bolton and big ears, um, Andy Marr, you know, we, 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 you know, no one would describe us as beautiful people, I don't think. Um, even the people who love us. So, but yes, I did, funnily enough, I acted at school uh, and my favourite part actually was I played a commissar, a communist commissar in the Queen and the Rebels. There and did you, did I you... interrogated. <laughs> the plot was, <laughs> the plot was that the woman in the fanciest clothes and with the best makeup was assumed to be, it was in the era, you know, 100 years ago, uh, was assumed to be the queen. Nobody knew what the queen looked like. So the rebels were looking for the queen, assumed to be. She was, in fact, the local prostitute, but she was smartly dressed and wore makeup. And I ended up doing this on stage interrogation in my sixth form. I'm afraid the career ended there. <laughs> but it's interesting that you're an interrogator, that that was the, the, the role you were given. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, yeah. Yeah, good point. So did you read for that or did the did the teacher just say, Robinson, you're playing the interrogator? Uh no, it was it was produced and directed by by pupils, I think. So uh yeah, well, I can't remember who directed it now, but they picked me out. Well, there you go. You must have you were you interrogating people at school? Was it something you were <laughs> Well I know it wasn't gobby. I did I did debating at school. Okay. So I was um surprised you'd be surprised to know, did occasionally speak. <laughs> But no desire to ever go into politics in any way as a an advisor or, or to stand for office? Actually, genuinely not, as is quite well known, although I generally don't talk about it very much for obvious reasons. I was involved in student politics. It's a pain in the arse, to be honest, that social media and Wikipedia means that people can keep coming back to that. Not because I can't talk about it or explain it, but I think all too often people hear something they don't like in an interview and then they look into your past and go ah that's why you did that or didn't do that well you know i was last involved in politics more than 30 years ago you know people move on quite a long time in, in, in that sort of time but truthfully i never wanted to go into politics i was and i did genuinely want to do the job i'm doing now for years like a sad kind of William Hague figure. So when he was reading Hansard at the age of 12, I was listening to the Today programme because my best mate at school's dad did the job I now do. Uh, Brian Redhead, who teamed up with a man called John Timpson and later John Humphreys, he presented the programme. And because of where he lived and the funny hours he did, I used to see him several days a week as I'd pop in the house to, when I was a kid of eight, have a glass of milk and a slice of chocolate cake. I'd look at the Guardian and the Mail. I always remember this on their breakfast bar together. Those were the two papers they got, even when he wasn't working. <clears throat> and even at the age of eight, I thought these are very different, aren't they? And I remember that whole idea that you could have both points of view in your house um, really just intrigued me. How important is that on you then, as an experience and as an influence? Do you think you still would have ended up becoming political editor of the BBC and ITV and ended up? presenting the Today Show, were it not for meeting him? Probably not. Really? I mean, I mean, that's a profound influence on you then. Oh, yeah, no, no. It really is a profound influence. And I still... The other day, I um, was presenting an item and they used a bit of archive of the programme to introduce it. 
and Brian's voice was on the report. And I struggled. I mean, I just was like, not sure I can talk now. Because emotionally, there's a lot of baggage there. I mean, but that, let's not go into it, but I was in a car crash in which his son died. And, uh, you know, I knew him after that. And it was all, for me, yeah, it was crucial. Not, interestingly, genuinely, not because he gave me a leg up. And when people talk about the privileges that middle-class kids get, I sometimes think they think it's all some great conspiracy. You know, he called a friend who called, in fact, he died before I'd ever appeared on air. But they give you the inspiration, don't they? Even without actively telling you, it's that, oh, I could be him. Whereas if you come from a background in which nobody does those sorts of jobs, and that's why I think the answer is I wouldn't have done it, um, it never occurs to you that that sort of job exists, or let alone that you could do it. So, yeah, no, I don't think I would have done it if I didn't know. But I guess people have those influences in their life, but they tend to be parents or relatives. Mm. I think it is quite strange. Or, or they're idols in the sense that it's Marcus Rashford or it's Liam Gallagher or whoever. You know, you see the person on the telly and you go, I want to be like that. Yeah. It's quite odd to have such a big person in your life that's not a, that's not a relative. Yeah, I know. I think that's true. But I did learn a huge amount from him just by chatting over the years. <clears throat> you know, he had a sort of healthy... Um, disregard wasn't quite content for the big name people he interviewed you know Brian was quite outspoken you know and he'd say so and so is a prat and so no and the other words that I will not use even on your distinguished podcast <laughs> but he equally was absolutely fascinated with what in the media we rather patronizingly call ordinary people so I remember him once saying uh I've just had this amazing conversation. So, like, oh, really? What, what was that? So, well, I got the train up from London and I had to put something in the guard's van and I got chatting to the guard in the old days. You know, the guard would sit there with the bikes and the parcels and all this. And he said, I, I didn't get out. I just spent the whole train journey in the guard's van. And he spent, now, he could have been in first class. He could have been talking, uh, politicians did that route. For him, he was much more interested in hearing two and a half hours of the guard man. And he used to often tell me, he'd say, well, the butcher thinks. Now, it turns out his local butcher was captain of the cricket team, you know, and he liked cricket. So his view of the world was, but the butcher says. <laughs> and you think, OK, I get it. But I, I remember that vividly because I just, he, I picked up, I think I picked up from him that people are fascinating. People's views are interesting. Uh, I'm always intrigued to know why people think the things they do. Uh, and one of the things I love most as political editor, and I do it to a certain extent now on today, is doing focus groups or going around the country, just saying, just talk to me why you think that. Not vox pops, not those sort of banal 20 seconds of somebody says this, 20 seconds of somebody says the opposite of this, but that just try to tease out what you think of a politician. I did before the last election, I went into a, what probably you'd still call a lady's hair salon, you know, in the sense it was very trad in a pretty poor part of Newport in Wales. I was on my way to chair one of the prime, uh, not the prime ministerial debate, but the leaders debate in Cardiff. And um, I actually sat there as if I was having my hair cut and got the people cutting hair to talk to me, talk, got the other clients to talk to me. And I promise you, you learn more about why Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't win that election because they were basically Labour people just saying they couldn't trust him or wouldn't trust him. And just 
but the key was chatting to them in their environment on in their terms and frankly taking the mickey out of myself quite a lot yeah i mean there were lots of bad jokes about the fact i didn't need a haircut <laughs> well no, I, I resisted all of them <laughs> but politicians are people as well aren't they and one thing that this podcast does and your podcast political thinking does is spend a bit more time with them as individuals and try and understand why they think the things they do, why they took the decisions they did. Are you fond of politicians in general? Not so much fond. I mean, as they're not my mates, you won't see them around my house for, for dinner. Um, I don't mean I've never ever had a politician <clears throat> for dinner, but it's been pretty rare over the years. But I sort of, I get it. I empathise with them. And I think most of them are sincere. And I think most of them are not. I'm the bore in the taxi pre-COVID when the taxi driver says they're all the same. They're all on the take um, and they all lie. I am literally the bore in the taxi who goes, do you mind me saying so? That's total rubbish. And it's just not true. They're not all the same. They're not all on the take. And it's just lazy and cheap. And, you know, if you want to have that view of the world, don't be surprised if you get politicians who are more like that. Yeah, and just, so, drop us up, just drop us in on the left, mate. Cheers. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Fiverr, is it? <laughs> I, do, uh, I do have some sympathy with them. But I'm also fascinated. I became fascinated by what in their background of politicians shapes who they are. Years ago, I did a piece about how leaders often have traumas in their life. Tony Blair's dad had a stroke, which stopped him becoming an MP, which he wanted to, he wanted to become a Tory MP. Yeah. Cue laughter from Labour supporters who say, well, his son did become a sort of Tory MP. Anyway, he, uh, Tony Blair had that. John Major had the trauma that the family went bankrupt. He moved from relative comfort <coughs> to poverty in Brixton. Um, Paddy Ashdown, who was a leader at that time, his... Um, parents moved to Australia but they left him in public school in Britain these were traumas in their lives that shaped them Theresa May's father died in a car crash Gordon Brown lost his eyesight age 16 on a rugby pitch David Cameron's father had polio and a bad leg and he then had a son who was extraordinarily disabled meaning that Cameron's life was in many ways dominated to start with his adult life by caring for this boy. I won't go on but look you know you could there's, a, there's an awful lot of tragedy in politicians' lives often, and it produces a kind of defiance. You know, I will succeed despite this, or I will fight so other people don't go through what I went through and so on. And I just find that very interesting. And is it that you think it gives them, that they consciously think that, that they think I have to kind of overcome this, or is it that just subconsciously it gives them a, a level of drive and steel? And I guess the parallel is with you you talk about the car crash you're in in 1982 where your friend dies that, that's an interesting thing for you to recognize in politicians is you probably have a bit of that drive yourself as a result of a tragedy yeah i think i think that's i think my friends would say that i mean you know i think i was fairly mad and driven before that accident in fact two, two friends died in that in the car crash but um i do think it it definitely wasn't conscious. I didn't come away from that when I recovered and say, I must now do this to make use of my time on earth or in order to pay respect to Will and to James, my friends that died. But, and I think at 18, you don't think mm. like that. But I definitely did have a sense of using time, you know, getting on 
not letting it hold you back. I think. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there must be, when you talk to politicians that have had the experiences that you were describing, you're absolutely right, particularly for top-level politicians, so many of them have either you know a parent that dies or something like that very early on in their life do you have a kind of subconscious kinship with them then i think i think sometimes i do and i have had interviews in which we've and that's the reason i like doing the podcast i do political thinking where it's got quite emotional i've talked to i mean grant shapps is an interesting example excuse me two seconds <coughs> Grant Shapps is an interesting example because he had, it's a while since I did this, I think he was involved in a small plane crash or maybe it was a car crash. I can't remember, forgive me, but it was a bad crash. And then later he did get cancer. So, and I didn't know these things until I prepped. And I'm in this podcast talking to him thinking, this is me, this is my life, you know, that I'm hearing back. So you do definitely identify with people now it's not always tragedy of course you know it's just the circumstances in which people are brought up in you know Angela Rayner you know um, her mother gave birth when she was very young I think 15 or 16 Angela herself then became a single mother I think again at similar age you know that shapes who she is as a person Um, and um, uh, take um, Rain's gone former Oh, take Esther McVeigh on the Tories. Her parents offered her up for adoption at the age of two because they couldn't afford to feed her. So she left the house, but then eventually came back. And in those days, it's like, you are someone to care for your child for you. That entirely shaped her view of the world. Now, some people listening will think that Esther McVeigh is a pretty hard-nosed Tory. But in a way, there is that working class thing. My parents even sacrificed their child to do the right thing and to make ends meet. So, yeah, she does have a pretty, uh, as some people would say, unforgiving attitude to people on benefits if she thinks they're not deserving. But she would also say if she were here, she's got, you know, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. I get it. Now, my view of these conversations is I'm not expecting anybody to come out at the end of them going, oh, you know what? I was a Tory. I now Angela Rayner. She's cracked it for me. But I do want them to go. That's why they think that way. Yes. How interesting. You know, and I for me, that's the achievement. If the end of half an hour, people go, God, you know, I really didn't like that person. But I can see where they're coming from now. That that does it for me. 
But you operate on both ends of the spectrum, don't you? You do the Today programme in the morning, which is necessarily at times combative, uh, a short amount of time. You're trying to get information out of politicians that are uh, maybe not specifically trained, but that are experienced in not giving the answers that you're trying to get out of them. Do you, I mean, some people say, oh, these combative interviews are part of the reason why the public's lost trust in politics. Did you set up political thinking as a podcast as a way to kind of offset what you were doing on the Today programme? Go, look, we have to have those combative interviews, but just so you know, I do care about individuals and here's a, here's a longer form thing. I don't think we're self-conscious in that way, but I definitely have always felt that there's space for more time with people. Now, actually, I was brought up as a kid and as a student watching every Sunday lunchtime Brian Walden do the big interviews on ITV it was Weekend World and then it was called the Walden interview uh, and they were amazing interviews now they were more policy based than personality and in many ways I wish we could go back to having those long-form TV interviews I guess Andrew Neil's interviews on the BBC were the closest to that but Walden's were much less um, pugnacious they were much more interrogative if I can use that word it was exploring policy choices and ideas and I used to have long conversations with the politicians who would say to me how frustrated they were with news interviews I mean people would say to me um, look we spent three months writing a speech and we come on your program and then you ask us about whatever happens to be on the front page of the Telegraph or the Guardian we spent a lot of time thinking about this we took advice we got people in and you've reduced it to one question. And I do think we've got to find a space again in which politicians can think out loud a bit. And we don't just say, while you're here, here's a shopping list of, for want of a more elegant phrase, Matt, a shopping list of crap that's landed on the desk of your political party. Because <laughs> the thing I think that is pointless that we need to get away from is um, Secretary of State for the Environment joins us now. Tell us why masks weren't bought properly in the health service. The proper answer is, how the bloody hell would I know? I've got nothing to do with it. <laughs> Literally, I wasn't in the meeting. I didn't make the order. You know, now some people is go, yeah, but he's the Tory. He's responsible. And of course, if they put themselves up for interview, we must ask them those questions. Yes. But generally, if you do, you know what? It's going to be a more interesting interview if you ask people about what they know. You know, if you were suddenly to ask me about um, polo or serbo my guess is it wouldn't be very interesting. What are the rules of polo? <laughs> shouldn't have done that. <laughs> One of those terrible people who did PP at Oxford and therefore responsible for destroying uh, the country. I, You've just done to me what, and I've just done to myself, what happened in my terrifying Oxford interview. Because I had to explain why I was giving up sciences in order to want to study politics, philosophy and economics. And I said, because I don't want to spend all my time studying things like, you know, why does a lorry slide across ice at 28 miles? I really embellished it. And then they just paused and went, why does a lorry? <laughs> Given that you're studying it at the moment. And it was all those kind of, you think, you <laughs> So what... At PPE, Oxford, you must have been in the same year as people who've ended up in very senior positions in politics. How odd is it when you come across someone that you knew at university yeah, and they're the Chancellor or the Prime Minister or whatever? Well, it is terrifying. Um, uh, you know, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove were both my, not my exact contemporaries. I think Boris is a year older than me. I think Michael is a year younger than me, but they were around. Um, 
the Oxford sort of debating scene, which I was involved in, uh, it's very, very odd, you know, and sometimes you go, I remember when I first became a journalist and I, I say, I hesitate to say this because I think it's not very healthy for Britain that the country is like this, by the way. I'm not like, ho ho, isn't it marvellous? But I remember going bizarrely to some press conference of the SDP uh, and I looked around the room and there were six of us had been in the same year, had either written the speech, were reporting it for a newspaper, reporting it for television. I just looked around and that is the way that Oxford University has tended to dominate both politics and the coverage of politics, which look, can't be a good thing. But does Boris ever say you're unique? Oh, you know, we remember you remember that house party we went to in our second term where I don't know, someone was smoking a bong. You know, is there any? Do you have memories like that of, of Boris I, and Gove? I never went to a party with either Boris Johnson or Michael Gove, so he's not able to do that. I remember David Cameron put didn't me deny on. the bong element though. Interesting. <laughs> what him or me? They <laughs> yeah. were so, uh, moving on. The thing. I did get completely put off in the early days of Cameron as prime minister. I was just prepping for a big interview. And he said, for some reason, something came up. I think one of his advisors said, we were Oxford at the same time. And, you know, I think we were, we didn't know each other. He wasn't involved in student politics or debating at all. And just before I'm about to ask the first question, actually, I went to go and hear you speak, to hear me speak. <laughs> at the Oxford. tables are turned. And in fact, in his memoirs, he writes about the one thing he did that was political is go and watch the debates in a very low key way. He didn't want to be involved, but he talks about watching me as a debater. I tell you what, put me off. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he did it to put you off? Oh, almost certainly. There are politicians who've got loads of good techniques for putting you off if they're clever. And what are the good techniques for putting you off? Well, I remember when I was a young producer, Michael Heseltine, who was the big figure everybody wanted on their show, it was literally the case that if you got him on your Sunday lunchtime programme, it put half a million on the audience of a two million show. That's not bad. I mean, he was mad. First of all, he'd insist you did it from his house, which was very grand. He'd then show you around this grand house as if you were going around a sort of royal palace. So you felt completely intimidated. And then I'm thinking whether it's fair to tell this story. Yes, go on. The presenter was Jonathan Dimbleby. And Jonathan's quite a small man, and Michael Eisenstein is quite an imposing figure, just before the interview. And he did it every time. And I'm horrified to say, I think it worked every time. Mike would leave the room, come back in with two cushions and say, you might want to sit on those. Wow. Just that little bit of a mind game. Yeah. Because as an interviewer, and obviously Jonathan Dimbleby's highly skilled, highly experienced, I'm sure it wouldn't have shown. But when someone does that to you, like when David Cameron says to you, oh, I saw you speak Oxford, is it just that? It just distracts you for a moment. It just takes yeah. you elsewhere. Is that the key yeah. thing? Yeah, exactly. It takes you elsewhere and obviously, and it also changes the nature of the relationship. Mm. So instead of, you know, a conversation, me interviewer, you politician, suddenly they're, t they're trying to take you into different space. Um, this is my house and I'm grand and you're not. Now, often it's the interviewer who's in their home, come to my studio. And territory matters a, a hell of a lot in these situations. I, When I chaired the prime ministerial debate between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn, 
um, I asked David Dimbleby, who I used to produce as well for many years and was the voice in his ear in budgets and elections uh, and at Panorama when I was deputy editor of Panorama. I said, will you have lunch and give me some tips? Uh, and David said, look, you don't need Honestly, it's fine. You don't need any tips. And I really had to beg him to, to go for lunch. Maybe he just didn't like the idea. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> I just didn't like you very much. No, quite. We had actually a really enjoyable lunch. It is one of those things that I don't know if you've ever done with friends where they say, well, I didn't really tell you anything. And you think it was absolutely bloody critical what you said. And the main thing he said to me was it's all about territory. You have to demonstrate that it's your studio, not theirs. They're the big names, but it's yours. And I said, well, it's all right very well you saying that. And David is a big imposing guy and I'm not. Said it's nothing to do with that, he said. And he, I now realize he was right. It's not about physical presence, other than physical presence, literally in terms of space. And so, what he told me to do, yeah, was I had a podium and the two candidates to be prime minister had a podium. And he said, you need to patrol the space between them before the program starts, like a kind of lion pacing up and down to say, this is mine. You're the ones trapped behind the podium. I go where I bloody well like because I'm in charge. And the other thing I did to try and, you know, frankly, intimidate them not to talk over each other. And, you know, won't surprise you, I was much more worried about Boris Johnson doing that than Jeremy Corbyn is I went uncomfortably close to them. I mean, in a way you couldn't in the COVID era. I was like virtually nose to nose. And I remember saying to Boris Johnson, I then had to say it to Jeremy Corbyn out of fairness and to be seen to do, but I was never particularly worried about him and say, if you interrupt, I'm going to cut you off. And I've got a clock and I will take it off your time. And if you do it twice, I'm going to draw attention to it. And if you do it three times, I'm going to walk to the audience and I'm going to explain to them what I think you're doing so that they know what's going on. Because it seems to be the key thing you've got as a presenter is if you can get the audience on your side, not usually against the politician, but against if they're behaving badly. That is difficult. Because Boris Johnson is a particular type of politician and he has he does it with a knowing twinkle in the eye and he, he, he he's able to misbehave and, and kind of bring an audience with him in a weird he's got a you know oh come on I oh, come on and you'll get a laugh out of it and then you know you might laugh Corbyn might laugh because it, it's a funny thing that he'll do. I mean, how do you deal with those dynamics? Nick, you're you interrupting me now. I think people want to hear, do they? I think people here who want to hear what I've got to bloody well. Even Mr. Corbyn might want to hear it. Uh, you might give him some tints. You know, you could see how you would do that sort of thing. I'm going out in a cold sweat. You know, how do you deal with someone that's, that is that really scattergun at times and very knowingly playing that and sort of game? It's very difficult to do because if you interrupt too much, you do just alienate a part of the audience. And he's a, basically playing that trick. He's appealing to the audience over your head. Look what he's doing, you won't let me speak. Um, I actually prepared that more than anything else for that debate, to the point of actually writing down, in case I forgot them, the things I would say. And I literally had a card, I've got it somewhere behind me on the bookshelf there, with kind of points of escalation. You know, first time I'll say this, second time I'll say that. One of them, I can't remember most of them, because in the end, funny enough, I didn't have to deploy any of them. I mean, I was able to be firm, hand now, um, pointing to the clock, making the point that somebody's turn. I didn't really have to deploy them. But the um, the one I got, because I thought you've got to have a bit of humour, I, I was going to say to 
maybe well, if I get to do these debates again, I'm going to ruin it now. <laughs> if there are any Tory advisors listening, stop. Right. No, what I was going to say to Boris Johnson is um, you may be in charge normally, Prime Minister, but in here, I'm in charge. You know, that's so fascinating that that was one of the lines because I remember Jonathan Dimbleby saying that to Tony Blair, and I think it was in the 2001 election. And I don't know if you remember this, Blair bites on it and it was Ask the Leader. And Jonathan Dimbleby says something like, I'm in charge. And Tony Blair says, well, for tonight at least. And he just <laughs> bites. And I remember watching that thinking, Dimbleby saying that to him clearly stung him a bit. Or there was an atmosphere in that room. And I thought it was really, because you never really saw Blair prickle. And that yeah. has really stayed with me that as a line, that really gets to politicians. That really shakes them. Don't like it at all. Yeah. Yeah. The only, uh, the interviewer who got the best of Tony Blair, and very, very few people did, was actually David Dumbleby did interviews where he had half moon glasses. I think he did it deliberately. And he looked out over them. And I think because Tony Blair is from public school background in Oxford, he felt like he was in a tutorial. This old you know, big guy was looking over it. He kept calling him Mr. Blair, which people didn't know. Or Mr. Blair. And he sort of looked down his glasses at him and then it's like faintly patronising. And it works like a dream, really, you know. And do you have techniques like that? Obviously, we've talked about ones for you uh, interrupting or trying to move a conversation on. Do you sometimes have to, I mean, with Boris and with Jeremy Corbyn, you have to kind of get up close to them to almost like a referee before a boxing match, really impose yourself as the authority figure. But do you sometimes have to play high status with some, low status with others? Yeah, I don't know. It's so much status. And in the end, I think a debate's a bit different. But I think an interview normally, I, it's more like a dance. You both have to, to, to move together for it to be a satisfying experience for the listener. You know, I think lots of people like to call it a grilling or a bout. Or a, but if the other person just doesn't want to participate in this at all, it's actually not generally a very good listen, actually. There has to be some sense that you've both got a stake in this and that therefore if you're asking a question that they're accepting it's a reasonable thing for you to do now they may not want to go where you want to go they may not want to answer in the way you want them to answer and so on but I'd, therefore the thing i miss most in this period is i get no eye contact with them so i for my podcast like what you and i are doing i record it on zoom even though we're not broadcasting just to replicate the experience but on the today program it's just not practical with the number of guests we've got coming in and out and the moment that's most valuable uh, is often in the green room and when they're having a cup of coffee during the news bulletin during the sports bulletin during the weather whatever or when they come in the studio a bit early you're able to say morning you know look no you want to talk about x but, you know, don't be surprised if there are questions on why. I would never go further than that. I'd never tell them what the question is. I'd never agree it, how it splits up. But I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, and, and to signal in advance, I know why you're here. You want to get your message out. And don't worry. I often say to policy, don't, you're going to get a chance to do that. But actually, the moment, I'm going to start somewhere else because I think that's where the audience is. So in that sense, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a, a dance. Does every does every presenter do that, or is that just the way that you've decided no. to to do it? And people operate in very different ways. Um, there are some interviewers who don't want to see their guest at all before they talk to them. 
David Dimbleby liked the mystery. Um, Jeremy Paxman, I think, operated the same way, you know. And also, frankly, when you're as theatrical as Paxman was, I think he he knew in a way that they'd be able to prick the bubble if they're having a chat with him before. He needed to, you know, the lion on his in his lair. And there are others, I guess Jim Nocty knows a lot of politicians who are using that relationship. And I, you've got to work out what it is you've got and I know a lot of politicians and um, I, I find it more helpful to have a conversation but yeah, there's a danger with it the danger is that sometimes you, you're too chatty and you and you need to remember that actually that's not where the audience wants you to be the audience wants you to be taking them on there's, there's no there's no, it's an art not a science isn't there also another danger that when two people have had a chat and then they have to go on air and have a chat it's really difficult, however professional they are, and it sounds terrible to a listener when someone says, oh, as we were saying outside, or oh, yeah, as we were saying earlier. I would never do that. Never, ever ask them about the subject. Never do that. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. And it particularly happens with untrained interviewees. You'll offer, as I told your researcher, as I said earlier. No, I think that's a disaster. And it's always... Uh, Worse the second time. We might come on to that, actually. Well, you know, I was lining up. As you say, it's a dance. I often think about it as a boxing match, and you kind of have to line up when you can get your shot off. And I was <laughs> I was leading us here because you've been very gracious today. We recorded. I will have explained this in the introduction, of course, but here we are. This is the point which it gets addressed. We recorded a, an interview an hour earlier. The Wi-Fi wasn't good. I recorded a bit of it, but the vast majority of it was lost, including some really fascinating stuff that you've graciously... Um, we've covered bits of it. Although I think, actually, this has been a very different conversation to the one we had earlier. We've covered some ground, and you've um, left in, thankfully, um, some really interesting bits that I hope you would have left in. But I was then really aware on this second one of not doing it in the same way. But also, I thought the benefit of this was we'd kind of warmed up to each other a bit. Yeah. So yeah. in a weird way, doing it a second time, and I'm so sorry for having taken so many hours out of your day and you've been so generous. But in a weird way, I think this, being totally objective now, and I've obviously led you to this because I've said I thought it was better. I think this has been a, a better conversation than the one we had earlier today. Well, it's probably a more natural conversation, isn't it? <laughs> of uh, doing it like that don't worry the reason i was uh, uh, i was i hope tolerance patient understanding is of course broadcasters do it all the time i remember vividly an interview in the lead up to the iraq war with tony blair on a foreign trip um i, th I think we were in israel I'm, i can't remember but in when you're traveling with the prime minister in order to minimize the time it takes what they do is what they call pull the cameras. So the two camera, one maybe from Sky and one from the BBC or one from ITN and so on, they stay fixed, they don't move. The prime minister doesn't move. All that happens is the chair for the interviewer gets vacated another one moves in. So in my case, you know, Tom Bradby does it, then I do it, then you know, Adam Bolton or whoever from that era. Uh, and on one occasion, I finished this really quite tense interview about effectively whether they were going to war and then I stand up to say thank you because somebody else is moving. In, and I realise there's I'm not wearing normally my instinct is to remove my lapel mic, that little mic you, you peg onto your jacket. And I think I'm not wearing one. And then I look at him and he's not wearing one. Oh, man. I think there's no 
that we haven't recorded the sound. I mean, we have no sound of this interview with the Prime Minister about to war. <laughs> and I think this is a total disaster. And somebody said, what's the matter? And I thought, oh, God. <laughs> what's the matter? I mean, you really must have been giving it away. Oh. Yeah, well, you can't. How can you hide it? Really? I can see in your face earlier, there's that's <laughs> like your laptop. And, oh, oh, dear, I'm recording. Anyway, the, um, thank God. I said, who's boom mic? You know, a microphone on a big stick called a boom mic. Is that, and to, through amazing luck, Downing Street at the time used to hire a sound engineer to record things for transcription so they could read them later and just for internal use. And he, thank God, was a highly professional sound engineer. And I, I said, have you got that on, have you got that on tape? You know, so rather quietly. And he said, don't worry. And it took him hours because they had to patch the sound together with the pictures. Uh, and I just remember sweating for several hours thinking, oh, we haven't got this bloody interview. Anyway, but we did. Thank God you didn't have to redo it. Yes. Yeah. Having to say that to the Prime Minister would be a little bit tricky, wouldn't it? He probably would have. He probably would have laughed. I imagine. I mean, he's the sort of... Of all the Prime Ministers you can think of, he probably would have handled it among the better, perhaps. Um, Possibly Gordon Brown slightly less well. Maybe. But you... You have to do so many different types of interviews. There's the long form, there's the Today programme, there's those kind of junket ones where it's you're hot-seating in and out between different media organisations. There are ones in campaigns. And the one that, that got so much attention at the time was the, the exchange with Alex Salmon during the, the referendum in 2014 up in Scotland. And, and really the thing I wanted to ask you about was really the event that follows where you get protesters outside the BBC in Glasgow I mean, it looks like a few thousand with flags and they're chanting for you to be sacked and there's banners, you know, sack Nick Robinson on and stuff like that. It's easy to look at that and go, oh, this is kind of a British-Scottish eccentricity and it's just a harmless protest and it was never in danger. And then, you know, you do see things perhaps recently on the news where you go, actually, these things can turn a little bit. And if one or two of those ringleaders had behaved differently and they got in the building, who knows what might have happened? At the time, did it feel dangerous? Sort of yes and no. I mean, yes, because the BBC became really worried about it and worried for me. And they insisted on me having my own personal bodyguard. And I think people who listen to this will probably know that that happened to Laura Koonsberg. Years later, she's, you know, been very kind of discreet about it, not wanted it to be known, I think, because she doesn't like to make herself the story in that way. Uh, but I did have to have a, a bodyguard, an ex-squaddy from Afghanistan, who followed me around for the rest of the um, referendum campaign for about two weeks, actually. So it was, on the other hand, I quite quickly realised that actually, yes, there's a lot of passion and anger. And yeah, it was directed at me, but I didn't think, maybe I'm wrong, people wanted to do me personal harm. I was angry for, not for me, you know, Big guy, been around the circuit a long time, know how to handle myself, get looked after. I was much more angry for the like 22 year old who's new to journalism, who's coming into the office, for whom this is incredibly intimidating. And I do think we saw some things during that referendum, which presaged what we then saw in the Brexit referendum and what we've seen in Trump's America, which is an intolerance of the media, the, the notion of, the phrase wasn't used, but the notion of fake news, which is just always used by some politician who doesn't want people to believe the truth in general. Um, 
And I do think it was a worrying development. And it is true. If I now tweet about Scottish politics, I will still get angry, hate filled messages fill up my timeline from the people who took against me then. Yes. Not good. And would that I mean, talk about this regarding the media, but the BBC is in, in specifically in a different position to all of the news media in the UK. And obviously these things do apply to ITV and Sky and Channel 4. They, But it applies particularly to the BBC. Would that make you think you question about how you might cover a future independence referendum? Well, it wouldn't make me um, less robust, if anything, more so. I mean, you've got to tell the truth. You've got to tell the truth as you see it. Um, what I think it has taught people, and to be fair, I know that this has been understood at the top of the BBC because I actually went to brief the BBC board about it. Uh, they have to look after their staff. Mm. They have to protect them. And I think, you know, I've been on Twitter for a very long time. I've got a lot of followers and I get quite a lot of abuse. But I've learned techniques about when to read it, when not. And also, frankly, I've learned, well, I never read it just before going to sleep. Never because it sticks in your head, yeah. uh, for example. I've also learned, frankly, it's funny. You know, if somebody, yeah, really strong abuse, you know, you just occasionally need to laugh. And the other thing is worth doing is checking someone's profile, because the person who's getting very angry usually has 12 followers, <laughs> called something like Fat Stan. <laughs> and, oh, no, I've been unmasked. <laughs> and believes the moon is made of cheese. And you have to... You have to slightly also just be realistic about it, which is if somebody came up in the pub and you just think, well, twat, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't agonise about no. it. And you, you you have to get to a stage where you're not arrogant about it. You have to say, right, 10 people have said something similar. Okay, something going on there. I have offended people who think that way. So I definitely am not dismissive of criticism, but you have to find ways of calibrating that's unreasonable anger and that's kind of a genuine criticism. But no, I, I, I think we've all got to defend journalists. When you saw scenes in the United States, a cameraman being pushed over, um, if you saw the amazing footage that Robert Moore of ITV took inside the Capitol building, there's a moment that one of the protesters spots the camera and you see a flare of anger. Mm. Now, Bobby, um, as I always call him, I once called him Bobby on air when I was ITV, Bobby Moore, you know, get here. And somebody screamed, oh, yeah, we don't call him Bobby on the news. He's Robert. Um, Bobby knows how to handle himself, you know, and he knew how to kind of reduce the tension. And I think we need to teach people, our correspondents, how to do that. And in the Scotland example, for example, um, when things were really bad, there was a, an hour's delay when Alexander was supposed to come to an event. Uh, and bear in mind that on the eve of poll rally, 2,000 people booed me when they saw, saw me on the stage. I mean, it was heavy stuff, right? They saw me in a balcony. Um, and I said to my producer, I'm going to go and talk to those people. He said, are you mad? <laughs> really angry. I said, yeah, no, that's the whole point. And I said, you know, come, keep an eye on me, but I think I'm going to be fine. But if I'm not, I'll, you know, scream or something. Um, and I went in and just said, right. And there's a lot of, oh, what are you doing? I said, okay, we've got, we've got at least half an hour because he's late. I've just had a phone call. He's going to be late. So you say what you think and I'll listen. But the deal is I get a chance as well. You know? But let's both listen to each other. There's not shout across. It's just like, I'm going to give you five or 10 minutes. Just get it off your chest. And I will. And um, of course, with all but one or two, uh, that worked. Not that they suddenly thought I was a great guy or that they thought the BBC's coverage was fair because 
people at partisans often don't. But they thought I was reasonable. They thought I'd listened. The one scary bit which reminded me of the other day and reminds me, frankly, Matt, of the thing that, you know, I feel passionately about is when somebody said, this is all about blood and soil. And I said to them, yeah, I remember that's what the Nazis said to my grandparents because my grandparents were German Jewish refugees, fled to China, then had to flee the communists. So part of my interest in politics is I've seen the terrible things that ideology does on the right and on the left. And I am obsessed with the need. It is an obsession. It annoys my children hugely <laughs> to listen to people you disagree with and try to work out why they think what they think. Not agree with them, but just listen to them. Why does that annoy your children? Because they think I'm too understanding of the people they disagree with and not understanding of them enough. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sensitive enough talking about your politics. I won't ask you about your children's politics. Yes. But do they, I'm interested to, with this new generation, do you think the treatment you've had elsewhere is, uh, would put people off going into journalism, let alone going into politics? Well, I think there's a danger of that. I think there is a danger of that, that some people think, why would I put myself through it? Now, because I was used to standing on my feet, I'd been a student politician, I'd done a lot of debating. As I said earlier, I like the kind of adrenaline flow of the live moment. I'm confident I can, you know, not use my fist, but use my tongue to get out in most situations. I don't By mind- which you mean talking. Yes, yes, yes. God, what a revolting- Heck of a technique. Course. What's Nick Robinson doing? <laughs> he started licking people. Well, yeah. No wonder they're livid. Let's, please, let's move on. <laughs> let's edit this bit out. Um, but because of that... <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, what an image. It's quite, it's quite a thought with 2,000 people, I have to say. But anyway, there we are. Um, the, uh, I think I probably, you know, in a sense, I quite like being at the centre of a ruck. I quite like it. It gets the adrenaline up. It gets my blood up. Uh, doesn't always bring out the best in me, you know. Um, but, you know, I quite enjoy it. For other people, it's really frightening. Um, I think there's a lot of misogyny. So I think it is worse for women. Um, I think it is worse for ethnic minorities who get attacked. One of our young black female reporters got horribly attacked on Twitter the other day. So I think it's worse for them. And I think in the end, it's like everything in life. Um, you need protection from your friends and your family and your employers. And you need training. You need coaching on how to deal with it. You know, you have to be streetwise. But it's a bit sad that we have to think that way, isn't it? You know, we're just reporters in the end. We're just doing our job. Um, but passions are, passions are high. But when I see what happened in the capital the other day, it does make me think bad to my grandparents. I, I was, I'll be honest with you, very wary of people who said Trump's a Nazi, because I tend to think that word is used as an insult. It's not a serious grown up analysis. And, you know, Nazis were people who set out to mechanically and industrially kill six million people. And I think, you know, nobody's a Nazi other than the Nazis in that sense. But I see in terms of the propaganda techniques, I see in terms of the um, riling up a mob, I see in terms of the belief in total fiction, quite a lot of what led to Crystal Knight as 
you know, Schwarzenegger said on a video the other day, quite a lot of force, what forced my grandparents to flee. Uh, and I do some work with the Holocaust Education Trust, great and charity, trying to explain to people how the way we behave towards each other now will not produce an identikit version of what happened in the 30s, but that we've got to learn from it. I want to end on a on a positive note. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Well, as, as, uh, let me ask you about Manchester United then, because in because your one life... Minute you, we were talking about licking 2,000 people, and the next we're on to the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a bit all over the place the second go. Um, I guess you're not intimidated by people easily when you're having to interview politicians and, and advisors and whoever else. Would you be intimidated face to face by Marcus Rashford? Is that something that you would would that would that unnerve you in a different way? Yeah, and I, I would I don't know about Marcus actually so much, but you know, some of the people who are the big names of my childhood, my growing up, I would. And I'm partly intimidated by interviewing footballers, which I've done. I mean, I did a big documentary about Alex Ferguson. I flew to Madrid to interview Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, then I was like, wow. Wow. I mean, that was a moment. But I'll tell you one story about so we leave on a high. Right. I was actually asked to do a charity gig at Old Trafford. And part of it involved interviewing the players. Great. It was the one gig a year that they all had to come to the whole team raised you know, half a million quid for UNICEF. And um, uh, I remember I had to interview at the last minute. That was it. They changed who I was interviewing. Now, this is relevant to what we said before, because in the um, sort of champagne reception before, I went up to Rio Ferdinand and said, hello, I'm Nick, I'm going to be interviewing you, la, la, la. Nemanja Vidic, that's the same thing. But Rooney wasn't on the list. And then they had literally at the last minute said, you're doing Wayne. Wow. And I'd said to uh, Rio and Nemanja, I said, look, I'm not going to do that. Or, look, I'm not a football bloke. I mean, I love football, but I'm not going to do, did you have a great season? I want to, you know, so I asked Rio about the music that he played I knew he used his iPod to entertain the squad. It was always him who chose the music before a match, for example. You know, I can't remember what, Nemanja. And then when Wayne came up, I said, have you got any tips, Wayne? And pointed at my bald head. Because he, at the time, had just started to have a hair weave. I thought he was going to kill me. I absolutely thought he was going to kill me. And there is a brilliant photo, which I urge people who like football, the Daily Mail did it, and if you put Nick Robinson, Wayne Rooney, I think it's death stare is the phrase. You can find this image in which Wayne Rooney looks like he's going to kill me for asking him about his baldness. And Ryan Woods and Rio Ferdinand are pissing themselves. Wow. The <laughs> wow. And did he, did, he then, did he then warm up, or was it hard games from then on? He warmed up about as much as a serial killer warmed up. No. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you interviewed them like they were on the Today programme. Yeah. David De Gea, you claim to be the best goalkeeper in Europe, and yet, and yet, and yet. <laughs> but instead, Route 1 called Booney, called Rooney well, up for being bald. They didn't invite me back. <laughs> Nick Robinson, for the second time today, thank you so much. Matt, it's not that I've got nothing better to do during the lockdown, mate. <laughs> but I've nothing better to do. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Well, there you go, Nick Robinson. So good they recorded it twice, or in my case, <laughs> conducted it twice and recorded it once. Um, but it led to him telling that great Tony Blair story, which 
I don't think I'd have got out of him had I not had to interview him twice. So there was a benefit there. Um, but I love hearing... The thing that I really enjoyed was why do some people do things differently to other people? As in, what does he do in his role that other people who do his role don't do? So does he talk to the politicians beforehand? What's his plan of action for an interview? And that tip that Dimbleby gives him before the leaders' debate at the last election to effectively mark your territory. And however, you know, often... Obviously, I'm fascinated by political interviews uh, and would always want to improve my technique. So there was an element of me getting some tips that I'm going to hopefully use one day or certainly something to learn from. But amazing. You, you, can, you can think about this so often and think about the art of the interview and, and how you set things up and returning to things and what's the best way to do it. And in, yet in that arena where you're, you're high-powered, two men vying for the keys to number 10... And really, the, the the thing there, as well as everything else, is to to impose yourself on it. That as uh, as evolved and as advanced as sometimes we think we are as a species, that is animal psychology. That is get up in their face and let them know you're in charge, which of course is a very important thing to do, but a brilliant thing to hear. So uh, I just loved it from start to finish. And his podcast, Political Thinking, I'm sure many of you listen to, is very much in in the vein of this show. Um, so uh, have a listen to that. But thank you for downloading it. And I hope you're staying well and I hope you're staying um, sane as, and as as positive as it is possible to be. Uh, I mean, January is always a, a terrible month anyway. Um, but from here on in, hopefully, the year and the world gets better. Um, and I will try and provide... Obviously, we... And I know I keep saying this now, so I need to stop saying it. <laughs> try and cover politics and sometimes very difficult moments like last week um whilst also providing some just politics that's not necessarily all about the contemporary that, that is a form of escapism that is interested in the individuals and what they bring to it so thank you for downloading this um i hope i mean some of you may have had the vaccine already which is just so exciting um i can't wait to get it myself i'm just desperate to have it now as i'm sure you are um and then, I mean, there's so many other things far more important than live versions of this podcast, like seeing your mum uh, or going to the pub or football. Um, but won't it be great when we can do these live again and uh, when just normal life is returned? But broadcasting will continue regardless, um, <laughs> which hopefully you're pleased by. I'll leave it there. Leave a review on iTunes if you can. Tell some friends about it. And I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. 